We are going to start Second Peter uh, next week. We finished up First Peter in the fall, and we have been walking. We walked through, or actually the summer, then we walked through the book of Jonah, and then we've been kind of walking through since Jonah didn't finish well. We we've been walking through, looking at some biblical characters who finished well, and we're going to kind of finish that today. We're going to look at the life of a man named Barnabas today. And so, if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you today uh, to turn to Acts chapter four, and we're going to. Look at a number of different aspects of his life um, in the book of Acts. He's mainly seen in the book of Acts. Uh, he's mentioned a couple other places just by, uh, just, just by Paul's writing and, and a couple of things. But we really see the reality of his life in, in the book of Acts. In my faith journey, <clears throat> probably like yours, I am consistently uh, reminded of the importance that we all have and have a need that we have in our relationship with Christ, and that is the need of encouragement. For people to come alongside us and encourage us and, uh, in, in our journey and our faith, and, and I experience this power often through people like, uh, and I know these people aren't going to want me to mention their name, and so y'all can just get over it as well, like Brenda Palmer who writes notes, and they just seem to come into the mailbox either at the church or at home at the right time. Uh, a text I got last night from somebody who was really anticipating, excited about coming and hearing what God wanted to say today as we look at this. And sometimes it's just a hug, it's a, it's a handshake, it's a, a phone call, it's seeing, seeing somebody in the church um, at Walmart or some other place and and just that interaction and the encouragement with one another. And so we all need that. And we're going to see from the life of Barnabas today, this is a practice that, that really just marked his life. He was one who was this incredible encourager. And I believe that if we're going to grow deeper spiritually, then we're going to have to have those um, around us who are going to encourage us in that direction to continue to walk with God. We've heard this verse a lot, but let me just share it again. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. And the idea there is this, is there is life-on-life relationship and discipleship and accountability that is necessary for us to continue deeper in our faith. And I believe that when we find those who encourage us this way, we have found one of the most precious things that you can find on earth is a believer to walk with us, to encourage us, in our faith. And so uh, this morning we're going to talk ab- ab- about that subject. We're going to see this in the life of Barnabas. And, and we will see that Barnabas was one who had a very strong idea about this life on life relational discipleship thing that is really, really important. He was one also who had a tremendous influence upon the life of the Apostle Paul. A few weeks ago, we talked about Luke, and we looked at Luke's life, and, and we saw that Luke um, spent a lot of time traveling with Paul. Uh, Luke was probably most likely with Paul in the second and third missionary journeys. We know that Luke was there when Paul was in both of his imprisonments in Rome, and there was this just tremendous impact that Luke had upon Paul's life, so much so that at the very end, when Paul is in Rome and he's all by himself, Paul writes to Timothy Likely, Timothy is in Ephesus, pastoring the church that is there, and he says, everybody has deserted, everybody's gone, and Luke alone is with me. And so if your life has been dramatically impacted like mine has, 
by reading the book of Romans and Galatians and First and Second Corinthians and all of these 13 letters that Paul wrote, you and I can say thank you to people like Luke and Barnabas because these two men had a tremendous influence on this one called the Apostle Paul, and we will see um, the reality of that today. So let's look at him today. Um, Acts chapter 4, look with me in verse 32. And we can never really fully um, get to a place where we, where we can say, okay, how much time has passed? We know that the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. Um, Sometimes we, we read the book of Acts and we read the gospel and we think all these things happened like the next day. And then the next day this happened. And, and that's not really the case. Luke is summarizing in the book of Acts just this, this history, probably over a um, three and a half to four decade period of time. And so, um, so it, there's a lot, a lot of information. There's a lot of things, probably really about three and a half decades um, of time that Luke is doing that. And so by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, the church in Jerusalem may be somewhere around 10 to 12 years old. And so it's functioning well. Uh, it's got leadership. It's really growing. Um, but the church is kind of stuck in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that there's going to be a thrusting from Jerusalem because of persecution and it will have a great impact. And so let's look. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Can I just stop there for a moment? Is that not an amazing sentence? I, you know, sometimes you read the book of Acts and sometimes I wonder... Um, could something like that ever happen again? Or was this a once-in-the-history-of-the-church reality? I mean, there was such unity in the Jerusalem church that if you had a chainsaw, it didn't really belong to you. It belonged to everybody. There was such commonness and such unity, such passion and love for Jesus that people looked at their possessions and said, you know what? God has given this to me. Because God has given it to me and it resides at my house, it's really for the body of Christ. And can you imagine what that would look like if we, if we practiced some of that? And so everybody, everybody was one. Everybody looked at their possessions and said this. It's not really mine. God's given it to me. It's really for everyone. Verse 33. I think, I think verse 33 is really important because it comes after verse 32. And I think what happens in verse 33 is because of what is going on in verse 32. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So you think about this for a moment. You've got a church that has everything in common. My possessions are not mine. They belong to the body of Christ. You need to borrow that. Okay, you can borrow that. Um, can I borrow that of yours? Yeah, I can. And there's just this, this unity that happens. And I think it flows out of that there was one driving passion that they had. They could not stop talking that God had come in the flesh. He had died on a cross and he had risen from the dead. And they just talked about it. They talked about it. And they talked about it. It made them alive. And it made them get to a place that we'll see in Barnabas' life here in a moment. That they looked at their possessions and just said this. You know what? I live here on earth, but this is not my home. So I'm not going to live as if these possessions own me. I'm going to live in such a way that shows that God owns me. 
not the stuff of this world. And so they looked at their possessions in a unique way, and I think it's grounded in they have this great passion about the test, testifying about Jesus. Look at 34. Oh, if we could ever get here. There was not a needy person among them. I want you to stop and just think about that for a moment. There was not a needy person among them. That meant people weren't, if they didn't have food, then that was met. If they needed clothing, then the church met it. You know, we have seen in our country over the last, since I guess really since the 1960s, this idea of, and the church has kind of allowed this, um, probably possibly along the way the church failed at this, that let's rely on the government to take care of those who can't eat and can't clothe themselves. And the New Testament church here would say, no, this is a responsibility of the church to take care, to take care of people. We should invest in this way. We should love in this way. We should look at our possessions, our money, our time, and all of these things this way. And there was not a needy person among them. Think about that. Is that not amazing? This church, we know on the day of Pentecost, had 2,000 people a part of it. Now it is about 10 years old to 12 years old. Can you imagine how many thousands of people more are a part of this thriving church? And they had one goal, glorify Jesus who rose from the dead, and let's take care of one another. But we could almost just stop the sermon there, but we shouldn't because there's lots of stuff. But I tell you what, that, that's something to really ponder upon, isn't it? That there was not a needy person among them. Here's why. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And verse 36 tells us, here's our introduction to Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So here the New Testament gives us this introduction to this guy who was a part of the church. Um, he was born with the name Joseph. So he is, a, he is a Jew, but he is not from Jerusalem. He is not from Israel. He is from the island of Cyprus. And so that is where he's from. Now, maybe he was born in Israel, um, but he has been in Cyprus for a very long time. And so possibly he's come to faith, maybe in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Um, maybe he, he had come to the Passover. Peter stands up and preaches, and maybe Barnabas comes to faith. And for about 10 years now, he's been a part of the Jerusalem church. He's being more entrusted with more ministry. But whatever the case is... He began to live in such a way in the Jerusalem church that they changed his name. That his integrity and his character was so unique that they said, we're not going to call you what your parents called you. You live in such a way that we're going to call you Barnabas. We're going to call you one who is the son of encouragement. Now this phrase, son of encouragement, is really significant when you look what this word encouragement means in the Greek. If you'll remember, there are several places in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16 where Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. 
And when Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit, he uses this Greek word, and it's called paraclete. And it means one who comes alongside to comfort or to encourage or to minister. And so when Jesus, in the ESV and in English, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the helper, when the helper comes, when the helper comes. When the helper comes, this is what he's going to do. And so, so this idea, watch this, that Barnabas had lived in such a way that the apostles said, hey, we're not calling you Joseph anymore. You are the son of encouragement. They are saying this about him. You are just like the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is one who comes alongside and helps us. And Barnabas, you're like the son of him. You are that person. You come alongside us, all the believers in the church, to us as apostles, and you encourage us in such a way with your great faith. And so here's Barnabas. He's a Jew. He's from Cyprus, and he is a part of this church. He's obviously um, probably a businessman. He's possibly wealthy. If he owned land back in those days, uh, in the in the first century, um, you were somebody who was pretty well connected. And, and, and so this is a guy who took a look at his life and realized, you know what? I don't need the things of this earth. And we'll look at that here more in just a moment. But as he began to grow in his relationship with Christ, something fascinating happened within the church. That John and Peter, Bartholomew, and all these people said, okay, you got a new name. And your name is going to be Son of encouragement. So I believe Barnabas was greatly used by the Lord um, to be a shining light within the Jerusalem church in a very powerful way. Let let me share two passages with you um, uh, just briefly uh, about this in Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And then Solomon writes these words, Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And I believe these kind of things marked Barnabas. Boy, when Barnabas walked into the church doors in Jerusalem, when we know that they met day by day, house to house, and we know that they met in the temple. And when Barnabas showed up, Barnabas never went, okay, who's going to talk to me today? Who's going to make a big deal about me today? Barnabas showed up at every Christian gathering and said, boy, I cannot wait to speak to people today. I cannot wait to pray for people today. I cannot wait to find out what's going on in somebody's life. I want, I want to find out who's struggling with something so that I can encourage them. And again, let me just bring this to practical application to us. We live in such a self-centered culture that it has drifted into the church. And a lot of times we bring this idea of, um, you know, we come into church and, um, you know, are people going to notice me today? Um, That person didn't talk to me today. I wonder why they didn't talk to me me today. And we create all these scenarios and conversations. We do all these things in our head that nobody else is thinking about, but we've made such a big deal about ourselves that we don't get ministered to because we're so self-centered. And the call upon us, I think, is, is we come, and, my, and when I come today is to not think about me, but to think about how can I minister to somebody else. And if we all come and do that, then guess what happens to the needs that we have? Then we're ministered to. So we minister to others who have the mindset of ministering to us. 
And the body works in an incredible way. And this is what Barnabas practiced. He spoke words and lived in such a way to encourage other believers. So let me just ask, don't say it out loud. But what would people nickname you at the church? If we were to give you a nickname, what nickname would you get? I'm not saying this is anybody. Would you get the name Complainer? Would you get the name Never Serves? Or would you get the name Loves the Resurrection of Jesus, Loves to Serve, Loves to Invest, Loves to Encourage? We should all live in such a way that we get a nickname that's connected to biblical integrity and character. And Barnabas was a unique man in that way that these people who walked with Jesus for about three and a half years gave him a new name because of the manner in which he lived his life. Well, we know this, secondly, about Barnabas this morning. So first of all, this, he lived this alongside life. He came alongside, he encouraged people, just like the Holy Spirit ministered. Secondly, we learn from verse 37. Look at verse 37 again. Well, let's put 36 with it. So thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's the second thing we learned about Barnabas. He put the kingdom of God first over possessions. So he looked at his life and he recognized, I am a landowner. Do I really need that piece of land? Or could the church and the ministry of the church use this better? And I think he probably prayed about it. He may have sought some counsel about it. And he made this decision, you know what, I really don't need that. Uh, My kids really don't need that, um, you know, after I die. And so the church really needs this. And he's prompted. And so he sells the piece of land. And he brings it, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. It's very unique as he does this, because here's what it communicates, that Barnabas understood that there was leadership within the church, and that rested with, at that particular point in time, the apostles at the church in Jerusalem. And he trusted the leadership of the church. He didn't say, okay, listen, I'm going to give this money. Have you been to churches like this? There are churches this way. I've served in some of them in the past where there's a wing of the church that's named after somebody who gave a lot of money. And I just think that's bad to do, personal opinion. We don't need a Doak Taylor Hall or a Rick Needham foyer or whatever the case may be. We don't need any of that kind of stuff. So when Barnabas brought the money later at the apostles' feet, he said, okay, listen, I'm going to give this to you. He didn't do this. I'm going to give this to you, um, but I want the foyer to be called the, the Barnabas foyer. Because here's the thing, once we start doing that, we begin to exalt man in the church more than we exalt Jesus. And we just, we've had enough man exalting. Look around at our country, how well are we doing with all this man exalting stuff? It's not working well. And so we don't want that to be a part of the church. We've talked about this before. Um, I'm not going to have a parking place that says pastor's parking. I'm not going to have that. I can park out there and walk into the building just like you do. Every one of us needs to think about our place in the midst of this and not to think about ourselves and not to think about possessions. And here's Barnabas. He's the kind of guy that he looked at his life and said, you know what, I don't need this land for me. Um, He probably had been prompted by the Spirit, and so he sold it. He laid it at the feet of the apostles, and he trusted that they were going to do what was necessary with it. And this is the very first action that we learn about him was that he was willing to release 
earthly possessions for kingdom good, and he did a great thing. Later on, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 6, he writes this about Barnabas. He said, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So there were some that were doing ministry, then they were being supported by the churches, but Paul and Barnabas and their missionary endeavors were doing something different. They actually had jobs. We know that Paul made tents, and that's how, that's how he made his living and, and did his ministry. We don't know exactly what Barnabas did, but Paul seems to indicate there that there was something that Barnabas did as well. There was some kind of occupation of this. Barnabas took the gospel to other places and to other people groups that Barnabas did some kind of work. So the second thing we learn about him, first, he, comes, he was one who came alongside to encourage other believers. Secondly, he was willing to let go of earthly possessions for kingdom good, and he put the kingdom first. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 7. I think Barnabas practiced this. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The context of chapter 8 is giving, giving, and Barnabas practiced this. He wanted to excel as well in giving and, and giving of his material goods to the good of the kingdoms. Now, now I want you to go to Acts chapter 9 because here's the next place. We don't know anything about Barnabas. Peter kind of dominates things and we get introduced in Acts chapter 8 to uh, Paul or Saul at the time and, and he's persecuting the church. And then we get introduced again <clears throat> To Barnabas in Acts chapter 9. Look with me in verse 1 so we can kind of put all this together so that we can kind of understand what's happening here. So it says, But Saul, which is Paul, still breathing threats and murder <coughs> against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way or to Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, he's, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and though his Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so they led him by hand and brought him to, into Damascus. And for three days and three nights he was without sight, and he did not eat or drink. Now there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias, and there's this picture here. I'm not going to read all that. So Ananias is told to go and lays hands on Saul, and, and God had prepared Saul to do this. And, uh, and, and so Ananias goes, he does so. Um, these scales fall from Paul's eyes, and Paul is, is awakened and, and he's filled with the with Spirit and, and Paul begins this process of ministering. Look at verse 20 of Acts 9. And it says, Immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said to one another, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. So people are just not computing. Okay, this guy's been persecuting the church. Now he's loving the church and he's preaching the church. But verse 22 says, But Saul increased all the more 
and strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And verse 23 tells us that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now look at 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, so Saul leaves Damascus. He's come with his disciples. He comes back to Jerusalem where he has been just wreaking havoc in Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road Paul had seen the Lord and the Lord spoke to him and how at Damascus Paul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And here's the third thing we learn about Barnabas. So Saul is just wreaking havoc in Jerusalem on this church that's established. Arresting people. He's got letters to go to Damascus and he's going to arrest more people. He's going, his mission is, I'm going to destroy the church. Jesus steps into his life like he's, he's done with ours and said, um, I'm changing your life. I'm going to change you and, and uh, you're going to now love me and you're going to love my church and this happens. Paul is under great persecution in Damascus. They lower him down. He goes to Jerusalem. And everybody at the Jerusalem church is like, I don't like that guy. You remember all the trouble that he brought to us? And so a new believer, passionately preaching, wants to join the Jerusalem church. You know what the Jerusalem church does? Why don't you just kind of stay over there? But Barnabas... The one who comes alongside said, no, uh uh-uh, this is not how things work. And so he grabs Paul and he says, hey, listen, this guy loves Jesus now. And we need to let him come into the body because God has a purpose for him to strengthen the church and to take the gospel to the nations. And so here's Barnabas. He's, watch this, he's willing to take a risk. While everybody in the church in Jerusalem is fearful, Barnabas just recognized, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to go to Saul and I'm going to bring him. He's going to come alongside him and he's going to bring Saul, Paul, into this. And Paul, watch this, Paul had this unbelievable impact upon the early church. More than anybody else, Paul did. As a matter of fact, we know this um, from the book of Acts, that there was, a, there was a time in Asia Minor when every single person, Luke writes and records for us, every person in Asia Minor had heard the gospel. Now watch the influence. Watch this. Now God had his hand on Paul, and Paul was going to do that. But I think because Barnabas was willing to take a risk... He sped up the process of getting Paul into the Jerusalem church, getting Paul's ministry going faster instead of keeping him out. See, Barnabas knew this, that, you know, we all have a past, do we not? 
we all have something, a life before Jesus. And some of our past is not very glorious, is it? Apostle Paul didn't have a glorious past. But you see, when you come to meet Jesus, he makes us new, and he changes all of that, and he gives us a present, and he gives us a hope and a future. And Barnabas saw that, and he was willing to take a risk, and he was willing to take on the responsibility to bring Paul into the church. Now, I think eventually a lot of the stuff that would happen was going to happen, but I think because Barnabas stepped in immediately, it happened on a faster basis. And I love this part also. Barnabas took the time. Watch this. If you're a disciple, you have a heart for discipling. Barnabas learned the story of Paul. So he goes in. He says, hey, he says, he says three things to them. He says, hey, listen to me. You need to know this. Um, the Lord appeared to him. The Lord spoke to him. And the Lord did this. He learned the story of Paul. And he related it on to the apostles and the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And I think that's an important thing. We need to learn the stories of people. Find out what God had done in their life and, and to share those incredible things. So let me ask this question before we look at the next aspect of Barnabas' life. Is there anybody in your life that God has told you, I want you to write them, I want you to call them, I want you to reach out to them, and I want you to spend time with them. I want you to invest in them. I want you to disciple them. Is there anybody in our lives that is that we've been prompted to do that? And then the follow-up question of that is, have you done it? Have you and I done that? Because who knows who we might invest in might become somebody very significant like Barnabas did with the Apostle Paul. And so that call is upon every believer's life to disciple, to invest, and to pour our lives into other people. All right, go to Acts chapter 11 now. Peter becomes the dominant picture again in the next chapters. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So when you go back all the way, you don't need to go there, but when you go back all the way to um, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Stephen is stoned to death. Uh, a great persecution starts that day, and it causes the Jerusalem church, who had been told to go to the nations, and they weren't going to the nations, and it caused Stephen's death and persecution to kind of thrust these believers out of Jerusalem forward, and this is what happens. So Acts eleven nineteen is kind of catching us up to what happened with Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They went west and northwest of Jerusalem. That's where they went, along the coast. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. <clears throat> but there were some of them, <coughs> men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene. And on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Let me just stop there for a moment. Let me tell you who the Hellenists are. So the Hellenists are Jews who spoke both Greek, or their primary language was Greek. They were Jews, but their primary language was not Hebrew. Their primary language was um, Greek. And so this is a port city. It was a huge city at that particular point in time in Antioch. And so you got to Europe, and people landed there. And so uh, kind of ships went in and out of that. And so this was a very important city. And so there, there were lots of Jews that were there 
who had grown up um, in the Greek world, and that was their language. And so they show up, so they're preaching the gospel. These people come, they're preaching the gospel in Hebrew, and they're preaching the gospel in Greek to those uh, that are there. So look at verse 21. And here's what God did. God was doing this great work in Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, word gets out when God's moving. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent, guess who they sent? To Antioch. They sent Barnabas. Verse 23 says, And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Let's just stop there for a moment. I just want to briefly touch on this. I tell you what, you are a trusted person when the Apostle John and Peter say, we're sending you by yourself to Antioch to investigate what appears that God is doing and the Spirit is doing in Antioch, and we want you to go see what's happening and taking place and get that back to us. The leadership trusted him with very important spiritual matters. So Barnabas practiced coming alongside people. He practiced the kingdom of God is more important than, than the things of this earth, and so he sells this field. He's a risk taker, steps into the life of Paul and says, Paul, I'm bringing you into the church. The church needs you to communicate and to preach and to testify about Jesus. And Barnabas lived in such a way that he was trusted with spiritual matters. And I'll say this to all of us. If you're 10 in the room this morning, or if you're 60 in the room this morning, and you're a follower of Jesus, you and I should live and desire to live in such a way that the leadership of a local church would say, we want to hand you responsibility. We trust you. We trust you with it. Men and women, we trust you with investing your life. We trust you with this ministry. We trust you with the finances of the church. We trust you with this mission trip. We should all strive to live in such a way that we are trusted with important spiritual matters. Barnabas was that way. They trusted him, and so they sent him by himself all the way to Antioch. And I love what it says there. He got there, and it says that he recognized and he rejoiced over grace. Barnabas... Because he had been walking with the Lord for a long time, and because he had been a part of an authentic church in Jerusalem, and he was walking with Jesus, he knew what authentic faith was and what authentic faith was not. So when he stepped into this gathering of believers in Antioch, he looked around and he went, Whoa, this is awesome. You've got Hellenists and Hebrew Jews, and they're gathering together, and likely Gentiles as well, we believe that probably Gentiles are there, though it's not specifically there. That this was this unique thing that wasn't just Jewish Christians, like predominantly the Jerusalem church was, but the Spirit was doing this great work in Antioch. And so Barnabas recognized what's going on here is Holy Spirit brought. And it says this, and not only did he recognize that, But it says this, that he was glad. And I think that's an understatement. It just means this. He rejoiced. He went, wow, this is amazing what God has done here away from Jerusalem. Look what the persecution of Stephen has done. The gospel is here. And you've got this group of people meeting in Antioch. And they love Jesus. They're excited about Jesus. And Barnabas is able to recognize the Spirit is at work 
in the midst of this congregation. So he recognizes it and he rejoices in it as well. You know, for us, I think it's important um, spiritually that we can discern these kind of things. Because sometimes you can go to a church or you can go to a, a gathering of believers and there's activity, but it may not really be biblical Christianity. It may be something in name only, but Barnabas got there and he recognized, okay, this is authentic, this is real, and you and I need to get to a place where we can recognize when the Spirit is at work, and when we do, we should rejoice over it. So I wrote a few things down about LifePoint. We're 10 years old now and and into our 11th year, and and I thought about some pretty cool things about us. I just want to briefly... um, Encourage us this morning. You know, we have our own Bible study method here. This is very unique to most churches. Most churches don't. They just say, hope you, good luck reading the Bible and kind of point some things. And we've got a Bible study method that's given us a common language and a common direction together. It's had great impact upon our lives and upon our life groups. About one half of our body last year was involved in some kind of missional effort. Half, half of our body that attends, uh, went on some kind of mission, local, national, or global. Mark and I met with a missionary um, this week and shared that with him, and his floor, his, his mouth literally hit the floor. He, he couldn't comprehend that our body um, was sending out that many people locally, nationally, and globally to take the gospel to places. About 80% of our body serves on a pretty consistent basis. We're very un- unlike other places. Um, last week or several weeks ago, um, uh, one of our students sent me an email and said, um, hey, can you write a recommendation for me about this scholarship? And, I, and so he began to list some things. And that student's been here for about, um, I think about three and a half years. Their family's been a part of our church. And he wrote these words and it floored me. He said, um, I've been on eight mission trips already. And I thought to myself, hmm, Wow, I didn't realize that. And I want to say something about encounter. Um, uh, We meet back here on Wednesdays, on Wednesday nights, and um, we don't have fancy lights. We don't have uh, we don't have a cool band. We'd love to have a band one day. We don't have we don't have any of that stuff. But what encounter has? It has really faithful adults who love students. Um, We're not here to entertain them. Uh, I guess we could. Um, you know, our students, you just have uncool people like us who love you and, and uh, are going to be around you. But what we want, what we'd like to do for you more than anything else is that by the time you graduate, that you look back over your life and say, you know, I went on by the time I was 18, about 15 different mission trips. My student ministry was about me going with the gospel other places. And I'm thankful for what we're doing church-wide here um, at LifePoint. Are we the biggest place in the history of the world? No, we're not, but does that really matter? Um, we want to be about the greatness of Christ, and we want to love Him, and we want to... And so, so we want to be the kind of people that recognize when God is at work, and we rejoice in what God is doing. Let me share a few other things. So listen, here's what Barnabas, so Barnabas, he recognizes God's at work in Antioch. He's like, man, God, praise you, God. I rejoice. And then Barnabas recognized 
this group of people didn't have any leaders. Now, they, they, they probably had leaders, but they weren't leaders of depth. And so Barnabas speaks into the situation. So look at verse 23 of Acts 11. So here's what Barnabas recognizes. So he exhorted them, he encouraged them with words to do two very important things. So he kind of surveys, he recognized God's grace is here. I'm rejoicing what God's doing, but there's something lacking here. And so he speaks into the situation and he says to these new believers, he says, listen, Christianity is not about a one-time decision. It is about walking faithfully with Christ. And so he tells them, listen, remain faithful. And as you remain faithful, do so with steadfast purpose. So this is what he immediately does. And I want to kind of explain this to us this morning. So he says this. It's very important. Watch this. Very important to see what he says in a minute what he does. So he looks at this alive church that the Spirit is clearly at work and moving and people are coming to faith. But he recognizes that there's a communication, there's a direction that's lacking in the church at Antioch. And you've got, got to listen to what I'm about to say here. So critical. If you're looking for a church, or if you ever don't you, don't you leave our church, but if you ever do and the Spirit causes you, causes you to go, then you go with this mindset. Here's what he did. He said, listen, you remain faithful to Jesus. This faith that you have began with Jesus, and so you've got to stay with Jesus. It's not Jesus, and now I start doing some other stuff. It's Jesus here. It's going to be Jesus tomorrow. It's going to be Jesus the next day. It's going to be Jesus 10 years from now. So you remain faithful to Jesus. And as you remain faithful to Jesus, you do so. And this may be lost on us. I'm not sure what your translation says. The ESV, um, the ESV says this with steadfast purpose. This means this. Here's the second thing he told them. Steadfast purpose in the Greek means, means this, to have a set plan. It means to have a set plan. So he looked at the church in Antioch that loved the Lord, probably gathering together. They were singing. They were probably worshiping. But he recognized there was no plan. Watch, watch. No plan for discipleship that was going on in the church. And so he says, here's what i got to tell you. Stay faithful to Jesus. And you've got to have a steadfast purpose. You've got to have a plan. And here is what's critical is what he does next. Look in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Watch. A live church. People coming to faith, but nobody's deepening in that faith. What did they need? They needed, Barnabas says, stay faithful and you need a plan. You need a purpose. Barnabas surveys. He teaches a little bit, but he recognizes, I need some help with this. So he goes to Tarsus where Paul is from. He grabs him and says, come with me. We're going to Antioch. You got to see what Jesus is doing in Antioch. They get to Antioch 
And for a year, they invest, teach, teach, set purpose, teach, 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 preach. People come to faith. They teach them. This idea in the Greek is they had classes. They had structure that they instituted in the church at Antioch. And they taught people. And I believe a solid church is a church that is dedicated to Christ and remains true to Christ, connected to the Scripture. Watch what Barnabas doesn't do. He doesn't go to Tarsus and say, hey, while I'm gone, get you some stage lights, get you a cool band, maybe a fog machine, you know, kind of hip stuff with the culture, get screens up on the wall. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He tells them you need a structure, and the structure that you need is to see Jesus in the Scripture. So he goes and he gets Paul, and for a year, they invest, watch, they invest teaching, training, set purpose, structure in the church. And you know what happens eventually? Guess which church becomes the first missionary church? Jerusalem or Antioch? It's Antioch. And all of this comes about because the next thing I just want to touch on, Barnabas' life is just marked with goodness. And Luke pauses here in this narrative and says, I got to tell you something about Barnabas. He was a good man, Luke, uh, Acts eleven twenty four. He's a good man. Barnabas is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. This word good means intrinsically good, which is profitable to other people. So when Barnabas stepped into the church at Antioch, his life of integrity, his love for the Lord, he's teaching them, he's investing in them. It, he, he just was, people just said, man, that's a good man. That is a good, good man. And it is good that he is in our lives. And it says that he's full. It means not three quarters, not glass half full, not glass half empty, but Barnabas is full of what? The Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand this. When we are born into the kingdom of God, we get all of the Holy Spirit that we're ever going to get. We're not waiting for something else. We are indwelt by the Spirit at salvation, a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. But from that moment, watch this, Galatians, Paul writes this in Galatians, we have to keep in step with who? The Spirit. We don't walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. And as we do that, we are filled by the Spirit so that love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control flow out of our lives. So Luke just pauses in the narrative of what's happened to Antioch and says, i got to tell you something about Barnabas. He was such a good man that his life was profitable to everybody. Because he was full of the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, and he had this unbelievable faith that was full. And so Barnabas does this. Here's the next thing. He prioritizes this. He recognizes what does Antioch need? It needs, it, it needs teaching. It needs teaching. So he goes in and gets Paul, and he brings Paul back. And I don't have time. Um, I had a fun Thursday. Do you have a, did you have a fun Thursday? I don't know if you did. I finished writing my sermon Thursday, and I read all 28 chapters of Acts after I finished my sermon on Thursday. And I went through all of Acts, and this is four pages worth. 
font size 10, Arial. Just page after page, almost three and a half pages from Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts chapter 28. And I found 86 specific references in the book of Acts that say this. They taught the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. They taught, they taught, they taught. They reasoned from the scriptures. See, here's what Barnabas understood. That when Jesus said, I want you to go into all the nations and I want you to teach them to observe everything that I told you, Barnabas took that serious. Early church took that serious. And the book of Acts bears that out. 86 specific texts. Some of those have multiple references in them. Probably about 100 references in the 28 chapters of Acts that said this. Guess what the church is to be about? It's to be about the teaching of the Scripture. That's to drive it. Now, it is great loss and peril for the church to go in any other kind of direction outside of the teaching, the primary teaching and proclamation of the gospel. And so Barnabas goes, he gets Saul, he brings him back. Incidentally, I find it interesting that they were called Christians after a year-long teaching of discipleship. What was that deepening of discipleship doing? It was... It was causing them to be more alive. Now, they were alive. They'd been birthed into the kingdom. But in their business practices and everything they did, the people in Antioch said, those people are different. They are Christians. They are Christ ones. They are just like the one they worship and they live like Him. Now, before we move on, because we're about to be done here, I want you to hear this because this is the driving thing of this church. Before Antioch became a sending place, they were a studying place. And because they were a studying place, they became a sending place. And from that church in Antioch, thousands of churches, thousands of people came to faith. As a matter of fact, you and I sit into this room today because the gospel went to Gentiles. If you're Jewish, someone has shared Christ with you, but for those of us who are Gentiles, we can trace back this movement from Antioch to take the gospel west. We are the furthermost western nation in the world, and the gospel eventually got here because Antioch took the gospel to the west. And Barnabas was a key person in all of that. Just a couple more things about him. Go to Acts chapter 13. Let's just read a couple more passages. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. I don't have time to go through all of this, but let me just touch on it. Watch. They didn't go to a cave somewhere and take a six-month retreat to pray. Watch what happened. They studied the Scripture, taught the Scripture, active doing ministry, and it was in the midst of actively doing ministry in the local church and worshiping that the Spirit said, okay, now it's time to go. And I'm going to send you out. 
And I want to specifically, I'm going to send out Barnabas and Saul for a specific work that I have for them. And so Barnabas embraces this great commission life to take the gospel um, to the nations and to those who did not know him. And I think this has great significance. The call to go came as they were doing ministry. So they were, I'm going to invest, I'm going to invest, I'm going to live, I'm going to serve, I'm going to talk, I'm going to use my spiritual gifts. And in the midst of that, that's when the Holy Spirit spoke and called them to go. Again, we don't have time to deal with this, but in Acts chapter 15, um, there's a controversy that has arisen in the first century church, and it was that Gentiles needed to um, obey some of the regulations connected to the Jewish law if they wanted to be true Christians. So in Acts chapter 15, they have a church council to deal with all of this. Guess who's a part of communicating and writing correct doctrine in the early church? Barnabas. So Barnabas and Saul have gone to these Gentile uh, people groups through Asia Minor. They've come to Jerusalem to address and to tell this is what the Spirit was doing among the Gentiles. And we don't need to ask them to do all and obey all the regulations. The Spirit fell on them just as it did us Jews who had been obeying the Jewish regulations. And so Barnabas was key, and this is really important, in establishing right doctrine for the church. And you can only know what right doctrine for the church is by knowing the Scripture. And this is really important for us. Now we know from Galatians 2, verse 11, that Barnabas at one time kind of got caught up with Peter about this expectation of wanting... uh, Gentiles to also follow uh, the law if they were Christians. And Paul confronts Peter. And in, and in Galatians 2, Paul even says, and even Barnabas was led astray. So there's times even as strong as Barnabas's faith was that sometimes you get around another believer who has a, a, a not right perspective of things and you can be influenced um, by that. And that happened um, with him. So I'll just say this to you um, this morning. Uh, I, I have to, and our elders, we, we have no choice to be concerned about right doctrine. But so do you. You need to be concerned about it to keep us in line. Right? Okay? So you may be sitting here today, well, does Acts 15 really relate to me? I'm not Paul and Barnabas. Do I need to really value right doctrine in the church? Absolutely, we do. Because one of the the things that's destroying the American church right now more than anything else is weak, weak doctrine. Weak commitment to the teaching of Scripture. All right, just a couple last things. Acts 15, let's look at one thing there. Then I will tell you how it ended for Barnabas. Did you know that sometimes Christians don't get along? Have you ever heard that before? Have you all heard that before? Yeah. Well, the first missionary journey is over. Actually, let's hear some good news before that. Look at Acts 15, 35. So Barnabas and Paul get back. And verse, uh, Acts 15, 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. This is after the first missionary journey. Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and many others also. So after the missionary journey, they get back to Antioch. And do they, they decide, okay, let's change the philosophy of the church. No. They, the, what is the philosophy of the church? You teach the scripture. 
you unveil the glory of Jesus in the scripture and you teach it. And that's exactly what they did after they got back from their first missionary journey. Look at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, by the way, who is his cousin. We learn later on that Mark is Barnabas' cousin. So there's this family aspect connected to Barnabas there. But verse 38 says, But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So John Mark, we're not for sure why, maybe got homesick and he went back home. Paul was like, man, I don't have, I don't have time for people who want to go back home. Okay, we're going on a mission trip, and we're going to stay. And so Paul didn't want John Mark to go. Uh, so look at 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And so Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Sometimes brothers disagree. Now I want to point out something that's different in Acts 15 that's not in Acts 13. What were they doing in Acts 13 when they were called to go? They were praying and ministering, right? And worshiping. It looks like there was no prayer over, okay, hey, let's, 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 let's go back and see how the churches are doing, which was a good idea. But you would think if that was born out of prayer together, there wouldn't have arisen a sharp disagreement. So I think sometimes for us, we have to be careful as decision makers in Christianity that we're not just deciding stuff without it being bathed in prayer. So you just wonder, would this outcome have been different if they'd have prayed, okay, who needs to go with us, Spirit? Does John Mark need to go? And the Spirit may have said, no, not John Mark. Whatever the case is, this great disagreement came. Uh, Barnabas and Mark go someplace else to go to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas go on the second missionary journey. Later on, it appears that there is reconciliation with all of that, and so it didn't remain that way, but um, this disagreement came with them. So let me close with this. How did Barnabas die? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us um, anything, but the Scripture we just read there says that he went back to where? Cyprus, right? Which is where he was from. Church tradition tells us that um, he was stoned to death in Salamis, which is a city on Cyprus. And so um, church tradition also tells us this, and it's really um, traced way, way, way back. History records um, people there that somewhere probably around 61 A.D. in Salamis, he's proclaiming the gospel, and they grab Barnabas, drag him into the heart of the city, and they stone him to death. And so this is a man who finished well. And was faithful, and God had greatly, greatly used his life. Um, so likely, the first, incidentally as well, guess, is the, guess which place is the first place Paul and Barnabas went? Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. So the first church that Paul and Barnabas started, that place became the place that Barnabas gave his life for the gospel. Um, I love looking at these historical perspectives. Isn't that good? Just to look at these people who've walked before us, who faithfully lived um, uh, with Christ. Let's pray.